0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicke.
0: Today on the show, we are continuing a logical sequence following from Jefferson and Lincoln by taking up the topic of St. Paul's Epistle to Philemon, one of the shortest books in the New Testament, and an epistle from Paul personally to one other person, though other people are discussed and uh, somewhat indirectly addressed in it. But the real uh, reason, of course, we're taking this up is because it concerns a slave of Philemon's, Onesimus, who has come into Paul's care, and now Paul is sending back to Philemon. So thinking of Lincoln's observation in the second inaugural that both sides in the American Civil War were reading the same Bible and praying to the same God, and yet coming to very different conclusions, we thought it would be good to look at one of the key important texts in the history of Christian interpretation of slavery, whether it is legitimate at all, and if so, how, and if not, the urgency in ending it, if it can be okay for non-Christians to do it, and Christians to tolerate that, but not do it themselves, and so forth and so on.
1: Well, Sarah, that, uh, that corresponds to um, a very interesting little commentary by the Finnish theologian Risto Saarinen that I read in preparation for this today. And he observes that in the history of exegesis of Philemon, there is both what he calls a conservative tendency to read the epistle as uh, supporting the existing social order, uh, remain in the state in which you were called, uh, kind of reading of Philemon. Uh, and there's also a, what he calls an emancipatory reading. And uh, what's interesting is he, he juxtaposes these two readings of Philemon and shows in a way their equal plausibility and then I think makes a real advance when he says, Why not both? Why not both being true? And then probing a little deeper dialectic than a simple uh, for or against the legality of slavery.
0: I think that's very helpful. You know, a lot of cultured despisers of Christianity and the scriptures just automatically say, oh, the Bible has and therefore supports slavery and, and, you know, wants women to keep women down and keep gays down. And, you know, all the all the bad stuff is, you know, implicitly approved by the Bible, which is a very... uh, frustratingly inaccurate reading, not only of the scripture, but of the entire history of the interpretation of scripture ever since. And I I think Risto's point is very good. You know, Paul is not a revolutionary in the 19th or 20th century sense, but he is also hardly a huge fan of uh, Roman imperialism or any other kind of... um, state-first or state-ultimate perspective. As we said on a previous episode, um, even to do everything with reference to the empire is to make the empire your final dialogue partner. And for Paul, God in Christ is the final dialogue partner. That is the most important conversation happening. And I think we will see that playing out in a very interesting way in Philemon.
1: Yes. In the light of God in Christ, for Paul, the form of this world is passing away. And uh, it's simply a matter of engaging with the new world of mourning. And we'll see that in the letter to Philemon, Paul indeed uh, uh, constantly insinuates to Philemon the new world that is on the way already breaking in.
0: Yeah. As I was trying to imagine how we might transpose the situation now, I was thinking of, suppose, um, someone 500 years from now looks back at current American politics and, I don't know, reads something you or I wrote and says... I just don't understand why they didn't give documents to all the undocumented people in the United States. What's wrong with them? <laughs> why didn't they just make them citizens? You know, and we'd be like, um, we can't give them documents. We can't make them citizens. We might want to, you know, to, to this, that uh, set of people, or maybe not to those others, but regardless of what we want about it, it's not like you or I personally have the power to make that happen. And I think that's an important, Oh, we should talk now about the historical context of, um, of, uh, Roman slavery, uh, which, you know, uh, slavery is slavery, but there are some differences from um, American slavery. And one of them is that it's not like manumitting a slave just automatically solved that person's problems or made their life better. Far from it.
1: Absolutely. Uh, uh, A a freed slave uh, is suddenly a person without family, without connections, without a job, without a home what is a freed slave to do now there were communities of freedmen in urban settings uh, throughout uh, the Roman empire uh, but they were on the very margins of of society in many ways their physical existence was not any better so facing up to the practical uh, alternatives to slavery as as Sarah uh, Rudin points out in her wonderful book *Paul Among the People*, uh, the Apostle reinterpreted and reimagined in his own time. She makes it clear that you're not necessarily doing a, a slave a favor, fav, a favor, in that social, concrete social historical context, uh, by simply setting them free and saying therefore you were on your own
0: I mean obviously to be a slave not obviously the fact is to be a slave was also not to have any family or connections or rights or property but you could be nevertheless embedded in the home of a potter familias there were cases where slaves and their owners developed a strong bond slaves might be very greatly entrusted with their master's property and become very important and beloved members of the household in that respect I think it was probably there were probably far fewer cases of that in American slavery than in Roman slavery. But often it turned out that even when a slave was freed, The slave would go on living in the master's household because, like you said, that's the only place that they would have family or connections or work or home or anything. And to be set free entirely was to at best become a day laborer. Uh, You might remember day laborers from some of Jesus' parables. (laughs) You didn't know if you were going to find work. That's actually still the case in in many places, too. So, you know, and, and certainly becoming free did not mean that you acquired any rights, legal or human um, or anything like that. I think we have this idea that, you know, you, you set the person free and then they, they, you know have some standing. Nope, they're just not slaves anymore they certainly did not become citizens. So it could be, you know, as a modern person, I just recoil at saying that slavery could ever be a preferable condition. But I can easily imagine learning all these historical details that setting a slave free could be an act of vengeance to get rid of someone, no longer be responsible for them and expect to see them die slowly and unpleasantly and probably much exploited by others.
1: Right, Sarah, and that's exactly what Sarah Rudin brings out in this great book because she puts Paul's discussion of issues around slavery into the context of the real existing Greco Roman civilization in which he was writing. Um, And and it takes slavery out of uh, the ideas in our abstract ideas in our head or the retrojections of the American experience of slavery. Which, let me stress, was based on race, anti-black-skinned racism, was what animated and energized Ameri- the American slave system. Since the black people were imported from Africa as suitable workers on the southern plantations, that was the whole thinking involved in this in this system, to preserve an, ag- uh, an agricultural plantation economy uh, presided over by a, a, a gentrified aristocracy and so forth and so on. That To, to just retroject that uh, image of slavery that we have from the American experience back into the Roman past is, is uh, to confuse uh, 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 the issues quite a bit, I, I, I would think.
0: Yeah, actually most Roman slaves were either prisoners of war. So there could be some ethnic, uh, you uh, probably racial is not the right word to use at that time. That wasn't a, a category as such, but so there, there could be some visual <laughs> differences, uh, but it could also be, you know, people from the, the boot of Italy as well, or Greece or whatever, who had sold themselves into slavery because they were indebted in some way. Exactly. And that was a way of yeah. getting out of their debts. So it didn't have the primary, the primary, um, Quality of it was not oriented towards race or skin color or ethnicity, though that that was a a, a certain thing. We should also mention here too that um, uh, Paul is bringing to bear some of the Jewish history of talking about slavery in the Old Testament, and of course, you know, the the core story for the Jewish faith is the Exodus from slavery in Egypt. Nevertheless, you find in Levitical and Deuteron- Deuteronomic law certain regulations regarding slaves. So there is some version of slavery that goes on and is tolerated by Old Testament law. For all that, um, two particularly um, important differences between Hebrew slave law and Roman slave law is that uh, the enslavement of... a Hebrew who is enslaved by another Hebrew is still called a brother. And there are very clear guidelines about decent treatment of them. And um, the other is that actually you are not to return runaways. So if a slave runs away from his owner in a Jewish setting and you come across him, actually you are bound not to return him to his master. And returning and uh, severely punishing runaway slaves are two cornerstones of both Roman and American slave systems. The whole system depended on keeping the slaves in such terror of the consequences of running away that it would never happen. And for the Roman environment, a runaway would was truly the scum of the earth. Maybe only a crucified man is worse. But a runaway slave is just, you can see, he's just the... The object of all of the displaced <laughs> rage and ill treatment and failure to discipline oneself, the slave had to be virtuous and abstemious with no rights to their own body or labor and expected to be restrained in appetites. while the owner could <laughs> be as self-indulgent as he wanted. And if ever the slave bucked against that or ran away, ugh, he just came in for all the, uh, the return of that repressed or... The return of that unrepressed as the case may be. <laughs>
1: yeah. And that also kind of uh, indicates the, the predicament that Paul, the author of the letter to Philemon is in. He is actually harboring a runaway slave. He's
0: Maybe, maybe. Actually, in one of the commentaries that I read said that if you read it closely, it's really not clear what happened. And Paul does not seem interested in over specifying it. So it seems like. Either Onesimus was a runaway, which, yes, that would be super dangerous, or it's also possible there are are precedents known in other uh, Greek and Latin writings of a slave going to a commonly known and admired patron of both the slave and the owner asking for mediation in a conflict. And there is towards the end of the letter the very subtle suggestion that if maybe Onesimus took some property or money with him, Paul's the one who's going to cover it. It doesn't actually say that he did. It's just if he did, I will cover right. it. So, but that's probably avoiding uh committing to paper what exactly Onesimus did is probably part Paul is part of Paul's explicit strategy.
1: Well, you know, the the way Saarinen deals with that question is uh, cuz he's definitely sides with the interpretation of Onesimus as a runaway, um, who for some reason has fled and and turned to Paul for succor. Uh, But Paul writes Philemon in the ambiguous way that you've described, because the letter he is carrying back to Philemon, authored by Paul, um, is uh, his safe passage letter. And if he is stopped and interrogated by the authorities and discovered to be a runaway slave, he can produce Paul's letter uh, to explain that he's, he's being sent back to his master. Um, and and so Paul is ambiguous not to incriminate either Philemon or himself vis-a-vis the real existing law of the empire.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that that seems to me like a plausible reading, too. It does seem to be part of Paul's rhetorical strategy not to say too much.
1: (laughs) Right. And, you know, he even says that at the very end of the letter, doesn't he? He says something like, I'm sure you will do even more than I have suggested. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or hinted at or something like that.
0: Okay, well, then how about I read it now? It's a very short letter, and then we can just kind of go through it bit by bit.
1: And I think you're reading your own translation, right?
0: Yeah, there's another um, podcast that I moonlight on occasionally called Fresh Text. It is shockingly a lectionary podcast. But um, And uh, it's for the graduate school class of mine, um, whose name is John Drury. And so I just got in the habit when we would talk about text there's just re- refreshing my mind with the Greek. I uh, can't really do that with the Hebrew, I have to admit. But uh, there are excellent online tools to uh, help you work through it quickly. But one reason I like to do this also is because official Bible translations are pr- trying to make something very accessible and reasonably beautiful to hear in worship, which is good for worship. But when... Doing Doing study, sometimes it, they uh, smooth over rough things that I, that I find interesting, or they obscure some Greek connections. And there's enough Greek and English sometimes that that can be illuminating to draw that out. So that was why I wanted to do it this way.
1: Okay, far away. Let's hear it.
0: All right. Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, the brother, to Philemon, the beloved, and our co worker, and to Affia the sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier and to the church of your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always, making remembrance of you in my prayers, hearing of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and all of the Holy Ones, so that the koinonia of your faith may become energetic in the recognition of all the good that is ours in Christ. For I had much joy and consolation in your love, that the innards of the Holy Ones have been refreshed through you, O brother. Therefore, having much boldness in Christ, to command you what is fitting, through the greater love I beseech, being such a one as Paul, now but elderly, and a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I beseech you concerning my child, whom I birthed in bonds, Onesimus, the one once unprofitable to you, but now to you and me profitable, whom I have sent again to you, him who is my own innards, whom I wished to retain for myself, in order that on behalf of you he might serve me in the bonds of the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything apart from your intention in order that, not as if by constraint you did the good, but by willing consent. For perhaps, through this, he has been separated for a while, in order that you might receive him eternally, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, above all to me, but how much greater to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If therefore you have me as companion, receive him as me. And if he has been unjust to you in something, or is indebted, reckon this to me. I, Paul, write in my hand, I will reimburse, in order that I might not say to you that you also are indebted to me for your own self. Yes, O oh brother, May I profit from you in the Lord. Refresh again my innards in Christ. Persuaded of your obedience I have written to you, seeing that even more than I say, you will do. And also, prepare lodging for me, for I hope that through your prayers I might be granted deliverance unto you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, greets you in Christ Jesus along with my co-workers, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits.
1: And let the church say amen. Okay, <laughs> very good, Sarah. Okay, so you want to make some comments on the text here? I have a few. I'll make it as we go through Yeah, it.
0: yeah. So first of all, uh, probably listeners noticed the the three times appearance of the word innards, which is one of my most famous Greek words. It is splogna. <laughs> Right, right. Which is like, that's like, who knew you could have an onomatopoeia for the intestines? But that's it, splachna.
1: It's the guts.
0: The guts, yeah. It correlates to, um, like in Hebrew thinking, the kidneys. Like often in in modern English, we say heart for everything, because that's the seed of affection and sentiment. But for Hebrew kidneys and Greek splachna, guts, it's even deeper than that. It's not the surface level emotion. It's that deep in the innermost part of your being, the part that you can never argue with or persuade or deceive that always knows what's really going on. That's your splachna. And so right. I, Paul's use of this, he does use cardia, heart um, sometimes, but I think this is showing like how deep and important uh, this issue is for him and for others.
1: Yes. yes the, the, and he's saying that his heart is now Onesimus, and he has a fellowship of, of, the, of the guts with Onesimus, and he has a fellowship of guts prospectively with Philemon, too. So there's a kind of an emotional transaction going on here, There, at least that he's, he's insinuating through the writing of the letter this way.
0: Yeah. And again, I, I the impression I get is it's not emotion, again, in the, the superficial sense of uh, like, oh, I really I love Philemon. He's such a great guy. But, you know, like that deep bond. And uh, yeah. Paul uses this amazing language to speak of birthing in bonds Onesimus. So Paul does like to use childbirth language, uh, both of, you know, the creation groaning and labor pains, but also of his ministry of the gospel. He speaks of himself of fa- as father, but also as mother. And it seems that Onesimus Onesimus was not actually a believer in Jesus before he fled to Paul, and it was while he was with Paul um, that he himself became a believer. So in a way, that's why he calls Onesimus his child, his technon, uh, that's the Greek word that he gave birth
1: to. In chains, right. Yeah, verse 10, whom I birthed in in bonds or in chains. And that that's an interesting uh, 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 vocab choice too, isn't it? Paul often refers to himself as doulos, uh, a Christo, slave of Christ. But in this letter, he refers to himself several times as Des- desmus. Isn't that right, Desmus? Descimate, yeah. Yeah. De- desmus of Christ, a prisoner of Christ, you know, in bonds of Christ, in the bonds of Christ. Yeah.
0: Yes, he carefully avoids calling himself a slave of Christ here, which one can only infer is a strategic choice not to uh, create unnecessary confusion. Um, another another uh, couple of things that I liked, um, though, the word like beloved in the first line is agapeto, So it's from the word agape that comes up several times when mm-hmm. Paul refers to uh, himself as Philemon's companion, the word is koinonon, which is related to koinonia, which you also heard me use right in the the main text early on, that word that we all like now from Greek of fellowship, but again, something deeper than that. The Holy Spirit is not um, explicitly appealed to, but there is the word consolation, which is paraklesis which in Johannine language is paraclete. So that's probably pushing a little too far to say that is the subtle presence of the Holy Spirit there. But I was struck again by how important that word of comforter is um, in in New Testament language. Another really important clue to the interpretation of this book, of this short letter, is that at the very beginning, there is an address to several people, right? There is Philemon, And then Aphia, the sister. We don't know if that is Philemon's wife or his literal sister or the lady of the house, however that works. And there's Archippus, the fellow soldier. And then there's the church. So from the beginning, this letter is addressed to a lot of people, and it's assumed that it will be read and heard by a lot of people. But then very quickly, even at the end of verse two, Paul says to the church, in your house, your is in the singular. It's Philemon's house, not the house of all the the four named people. And then throughout the body of the entire letter, every single instance of you or your is in the singular. So it's basically the idea is that Paul is writing to Philemon and clearly leaning on him heavily to do what Paul wants him to do. And Philemon alone is responsible. He is the Roman pater familias. He has the final say and power in this household. But Paul is saying all these things to him within earshot of Affia and Archippus and the entire church that meets in their house. Right, <laughs> And then at the very end, at verse 22, Paul says, when he says, prepare lodging for me, because I hope that through your prayer, suddenly yours is plural, I might be <laughs> de- granted deliverance. And that is kari stesomai. So it Uh, the granting of deliverance has the word charis or grace embedded inside of it unto you. That is plural again. So the prayers and the reappearance of Paul among them is a plural thing again. And uh, the next line, Epiphras greets Philemon in the singular, but in the very last verse, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your plural spirit. It goes back again to the entire church. So it's kind of like, um, Paul is subjecting Philemon to this very cheerful and kind and a little bit tricky rhetorical dressing down, but in the presence of a whole lot of other people who he has power over, but obviously also wants to continue to impress. It is masterful, I have to say.
1: Well, and it's also substantive, though, because he's taking the existing social uh, location of Philemon as patron of the church and pater familias and slave master, he's taking that concrete position of social authority that Philemon possesses, and he's inserting it into a brand new set of relationships with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the company of the church that has been entrusted to his care. And he's making mentioning that in this respect, Philemon is his co-worker right? The beloved and our co-worker. The first verse mentions Philemon as a co-worker. So the the gospel does not abolish in an instant the existing social relationships, least of all of Philemon's, but it puts these existing social relationships into the context of God's new world, which is a morning.
0: Yeah, that's so good. And there's another subtle twist to this effect, which is that Onesimus's name means useful. And this was a very common sort of name to give to slaves, these kind of degrading, like, yeah, you're useful, you're profitable. Paul makes the the joke about profitable and unprofitable and how Onesimus is becoming profitable. Um, And that's playing, it's a different Greek word, but it's playing on the meaning of Onesimus's name. But then in verse 20, when Paul is addressing Philemon, he says, yes, oh, brother, may I profit from you. And the word profit there is Onimon. So he is actually right. taking Onesimus's name and suggesting that that's what Paul ought to be getting out of Philemon. So with just that little choice of adjective, he's creating a, a leveling in that sense between Philemon and Onesimus, but where Paul is, re- is concerned in the gospel, not in the social order.
1: Right, yes, 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 that's right. I, I want to get it. You, you expected your Onesimus to be useful to you. He was not useful. He was a bad slave. I guess that's the implication. But now he's going to be useful to me and to you not only in the Lord, but also in the flesh, right? That's what that's what it says in verse 16. And so this the existing relationships in the in the physical world, in the flesh. Uh, uh, and in the society that's concretely there have been reinserted now into this new context so that the form of this present world is slowly passing away and the form of the world that's coming is working this subversion. That would be Risto Saarinen's emancipatory reading of the letter to Philemon.
0: You know, and just to read it in a purely, you know, psychological way, if the social order stands, but the emotional weather has been permanently altered by the intervention of someone that Philemon admires and respects as much as Paul, who brought him into this new faith and now is sending back Onesimus under whatever circumstances to be with him. But now as a Christian, not simply as a slave, it can't not change. Right? Like if Philemon really means his faith at all, and if Onesimus really does, and if Paul's presence continues in their life, even if the outward social order does not alter, something is going to change in that ho- household that simply has to. Again, it might not be with the uh, speed and rapidity and destruction that, uh, you know, a Marxist might like to see, but it is going to, it's going to be the, the leaven in the lump that is going to slowly make the whole thing rise.
1: I think you're right. I don't want to get way off track here because there's still some exegetical observations for us to make. But I want to mention here a really interesting book by a Mennonite theologian named Alan Crider. And the title of the book is The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, a subtitled The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And he makes the argument That so much church history has been um, the history of big actors and politicians and bishops and so forth, and that has created this impression of the sellout of Christianity to Constantinianism um, or something like that. And and what Kreider points out in the book is how the the kind of uh, reversal of prevailing values. That's occurring in the letter to Philemon, uh, worked a patient ferment, uh, the leaven that leavens the whole lump uh, uh, through the course of time, and I I think this is really important for us, especially uh, uh, in the Lutheran tradition. Uh, If you don't mind my just going off on this for a second, uh, Luther's Yeah, yeah, Luther's little commentary on Philemon. Uh, characteristically stress the difference between civil or political freedom and Christian freedom, and urge that they not be confused. And of course, this can be taken in that uh, conservative reading of Philemon that Saarinen refers to, as if Luther were saying, uh, don't trouble the status quo, just be content with a spiritual change in your uh, personal relationships and in your feelings or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I do think uh, here uh, there's a, a, a valid point to be made about the distinction between civil and Christian freedom. Uh, I can't imagine a political order today that would demand in the name of the gospel that we abolish wage labor. You hear what I'm saying? Imagine, I mean, many of the students I've taught in the last generation are in such dismay at the at the low dimming of their prospects, um, and you know we have what we're calling in the United States the great resignation, as people are saying, I'm just not working at these junk jobs that destroy my soul anymore for wages that just keep me deeper and deeper in debt into an economy of bread and circuses, which I find personally and spiritually degrading. Uh, I'm not going to be a wage slave. That's kind of the the defiant cry of an angry young generation that we hear today. Uh, and you could imagine, couldn't you, uh, that if you're really Christians, you would demand now, now, now I'm not going to be patient anymore. Right now, I want the abolition of wage slavery. I want the end of labor for hire. I want everybody to have an equal income paid for by the state. Well, if you're going to really make that argument uh, that, that the gospel freedom demands immediate political liberation in these material ways, I think that's what you have to say. What do you think about that?
0: Um, I wish that economics education was far superior than it is <laughs> um, <laughs> for for this to seem like a good idea. So I'm I'm a little bit stuck on the um, self defeating nature of the proposal itself, but um, and also that any. Christian could be so economically ignorant as to think that was a good idea, not denying there are many huge issues in the labor markets. So I'm a little bit stuck on that. But I think I get your point simply being that um, to, to say that on, on account of the gospel, we must abolish wage slavery is an, an enormous um, non sequitur. And however stirring it might be to the soul, the one does not logically follow from the other, certainly not demand its enactment.
1: Yeah, and so the alternative is to put the existing order, which can be the existing order today or 2,000 years ago, wherever the gospel finds us, wherever we are called, whatever our station in life, to put that concretely into the supervening context of the new world that God is creating, which does not immediately abolish the society in which we exist. But it works this patient ferment that we see at work in the letter to Philemon. Okay, let's get back to the text. That's, I just wanted to take a brief digression on that.
0: Well, and it is true that over time in you know the European kingdoms and civilizations that were built out from the fall of Rome and the emergence of Christendom is that slavery, at least of the Roman kind, fell out of favor and gradually disappeared from the scene. Obviously, it reappeared a different format later, and there were certainly plenty of problems of class and abuse of the poor and so forth. But the kind of slavery that Rome had really did expire as um, the Christian ferment took over the ruins of the empire. Uh,
1: Absolutely. And in fact, the reinvigoration of slavery in America 350 years ago was again based on a factor that previously had not been predominant uh, namely uh, uh, races uh, racial thinking
0: okay uh, there are just two more sort of things uh, to address to set the context of Philemon before we go into its themes one is of course you said uh, Paul mentions many times that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Um, Again, talk about refusing to give the empire its due. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's not a prisoner of whatever uh, municipality has him. Uh, He's a prisoner because of his preaching of Christ. Um, Often, I guess when people read this, they they just assume he means his final imprisonment in Rome. But that probably doesn't make sense with a lot of the other um, contextual details here. Paul does boast, I think, in 2 Corinthians that he got imprisoned a lot. So um, the the best guess is that probably this is somewhere in Asia Minor near Phrygia or Colossae, which is um, closer to the the setting of the letter itself. And that would also make it more reasonable for Philemon to have found, or sorry, that also would make it more reasonable for Onesimus to have found Paul at all, because to get from Phrygia in Asia Minor all the way to Rome is quite a trip for a slave. Um, And for it to be reasonable for both Onesimus to go back to Philemon with this letter and for Paul to say prepare me a guest room because I'm coming as soon as I can you know if Paul gets out of his Roman imprisonment he's not going back to Asia Minor he's moving onward to Spain so probably this is earlier in Paul's career and not his final imprisonments um and he talks about a fellow prisoner but also that there are other people who are visiting him so again it's not like now our you know federal lockdown penitentiary or whatever the there are many great of imprisonments, and it might be something more like house arrest. It could be actually literally in chains, but there was, you know, freedom of movement for people to see him because the prisons did not provide food, for example. You know, his friends had to come and feed him and so forth.
1: You know, there's an interesting question here about the correspondences with the um, letter uh, to the Colossians whose uh, uh, authorship is disputed. Um, every time I read Colossians, I go, I go back and forth. Paul wrote this, you know, <laughs> one, of, one of Paul's disciples wrote this. You know, it's very hard for me to to make come down on Colossians. But there are a lot of connections uh, between the characters mentioned in Philemon's and, and the characters mentioned in Colossians. And there's also now from the letter of uh, Ignatius of Antioch, There's a reference to an Onesimus who was the bishop in these regions. And so there's kind of a speculation that um, both the letter to the Colossians um, as a Deutero-Pauline, as a secondary uh, Pauline text, uh, stems from a circle around the manumitted Onesimus who found a new life as an early Christian episcopus, an early Christian city pastor, perhaps even in Colossae? Uh, uh,
0: yeah, the the commentary I read by Joseph Fitzmyer finds that a bit fanciful <laughs> and and unlikely. Um, and you know, there is an ancient passion for making connections between names, because it makes a good story. So so who knows? But it is true that in Colossians, there is an Onesimus referred to as our faithful and beloved brother, and along with the names of Timothy, Epiphras, Aristarchus, Mark, Luke, and Demas. So um, it right. seems that- you know, if Colossians is not authentically Pauline, they're kind of plundering Philemon. But there is the, still the question of like, why does this letter to Philemon still exist at all? Who is responsible? Why does it for
1: survive? Its- yes, exi- yes. Why does it survive, and how does it get into the canon? And uh, right. you can ask the same question. If Colossians is Deuteropauline, you can ask the same questions about Colossians.
0: Right, so yeah, the, I suppose the virtue of the Onesimus bishop theory is that he hang hu- he hung on to this letter of safe passage that completely and irrevocably changed his status as a human being um, and um, made him a prominent co-worker with Paul and others. And that's why it was included. But again so much, I mean that that's that's kind of the fun of reading New Testament scholarship is there's so little so little data to go on and so many attempts to uh, to weave a, a story that seems compelling. but you know you can weave the same same um, bits in different ways.
1: Sure. And, you know, let's just, before we raise some other questions, as we've gone through the text of Philemon, let's talk a little bit about two features of the text that I find very interesting. Uh, One is how Paul contrasts obligation uh, with a beseeching or an appeal to a greater love, right? And how he then says, I didn't want uh, to force you to do anything, uh, do what is good, but I wanted your willing consent. I wanted your voluntary uh, uh, obedience. And even translating the word hupawake as obedience is a little bit misleading. It means more like your serious listening, you're, uh, you're persuaded of your listening closely to what I have written is how I might paraphrase verse 21, right? So Paul here is making a really interesting contrast between something that he thinks he could be bold enough to command and lay upon Philemon as an obligation with an appeal to the greater good, the greater love that they share in Christ Jesus, which takes us back to that verse 6, which is so interesting, the koinonia or fellowship of your own faith, Philemon, that it may become energetic in the recognition of all the good that is ours in Christ, right? So there's this appeal to this overabundant goodness that has been given in Christ that should motivate Philemon to act out of uh, uh, sheer gratitude Uh, for the gifts that he has been given in Christ, mediated by Paul who ministered to him and could now be further mediated by fulfilling Paul's heart with joy in treating Onesimus well and in Onesimus himself becoming profitable to him in the Lord as well as in the flesh.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's so good. You know, it occurs to me as you say that, that Paul— clearly believes he has a kind of master's rights over Philemon because he is his father in the gospel. And as the apostle of the Lord, though he doesn't call himself an apostle in this letter explicitly, he could command Philemon, the way Philemon could command Onesimus. And so, what Paul is doing is acknowledging that just enough to say, This is the situation. We have a parallel here, but I am going to refrain from acting like a master in the hopes that you will refrain from acting like a master. And we can just set aside that whole form of relatedness for something that is different, like koinonia and common participation and all the good in Christ and refreshing one another's innards in Christ.
1: Yeah, two two comments to that, Sarah. Uh, Centuries later, when the Emperor Theodosius uh, uh, reverted to old-fashioned Roman imperial ways and committed a massacre, the Bishop Ambrose in Milan uh, excommunicated him. Until he publicly repented in sackcloth and ashes. And Theodosius actually repented. Here's another example of taking the existing worldly institutions, the way things actually are, and inserting them into the new context of the gospel. The case of Ambrose and Theodosius, of course, is a negative one. Of a crime committed by the emperor, the Roman emperor, brought to his knees by the bishop who excommunicates him until he publicly repents. But here you have a positive case in which uh, in this letter of Paul um, um, beseeching uh, Philemon uh, to uh, act proactively on the basis of the gospel. And you know, just one last comment about that, Sarah. It's not for Paul cheap grace. I wanna, I wanna stress that in here in these verses, um, 18, uh, 17 and eighteen, when Paul talks about compensating Philemon, if if Onesimus has in any way injured him, Paul understands that grace may be free to us, but it's not free to the giver. Let me say that again. Grace may be free to us, but it's not free to the giver. It's always a self-donating act. It's always a self, uh, a sacrificial act. Uh, it's, uh, grace is free to us because it cost God and Christ uh, to create this uh, supervening grace that is able to meet, match, and overcome the real injuries of real sin and injury and injustice, as Paul mentions in verse 17 and 18.
0: That's such a good point because free in English can have uh, more than one connotation. One connotation could be it's free because it is has no value. It's worthless. So that's why it's free. And But for Paul, for grace, Grace is free because of God's character, but not because it's valueless, but because it's of such immense and surpassing value, there is no price that could be paid for it on the creaturely side anyway. It has to be purely that self- donation of God.
1: Right. But of course it's not a gen- of course, this kind of grace is not a general principle. It's not the right idea of God. It is God's concrete act in Christ which is now being repeated in a non-identical way in Paul's offer to compensate Philemon for any debts that Onesimus has incurred.
0: Yeah, this is the ongoing creativity and freedom. And, you know, if this is where the Holy Spirit appears in Philemon in in the characteristically subtle way, this is it, because this gift of God in Christ is already super abundant for Paul. And now in these, again, very specific and personal circumstances, Paul can live out of that and pour out its abundance specifically personally between him and Philemon and Onesimus.
1: And, you know, there's one other note on verse 18 there that just occurred to me. Um, Oh, yeah, I wanted to get to that
0: one. Yeah, yeah.
1: Go ahead. Why don't you go on it and then I'll comment.
0: Okay. Well, so... One of the other interesting things, you know, why did, why did this letter get preserved? And one of the curiosities about it is that, to first glance, it is not theological in content. It's not, you know, like most of Paul's other letters discussing at length theological topics. It's this personal appeal. But that is only a superficial reading because it the whole thing unfolds in entirely theological logic all the way through. So at the beginning, of course, there's the appeal to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to my God always, the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus. Jesus, the recognition of all the good you had in Christ, boldness in Christ, um, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, you know, so the, the language is there repeatedly. But I think this is where, you know, we, we really get um, even, I not want to say beyond the good of the fellowship. Of course, that isn't an enormous good. But when we get down to the, the really theological meat of the issue is there in in verse 18, where Paul says, if Onesimus has been unjust to you, that word unjust is edikesin. So it has the same root as dikaiosune, all of the righteousness and justification related words. So if he has been unjust to you, Onesimus has been unjust to Philemon in something. Or if... of Onesimus is indebted to Philemon for anything. And that word is Ophele, and that language of debt is also one that's used theologically um, in other places throughout the New Testament.
1: In the Lord in the Lord's Prayer, yeah, yeah.
0: Right, right. Then finally Paul says reckon this to me, Eloga. I don't think it's the same one that he he uses in Romans, but the, the the sense of it is is exactly the same that whatever debt or injustice has occurred on the part of that person, Onesimus, it should be reckoned the un, the unrighteousness and the debt should be reckoned to me, Paul instead. And the reason that can happen is because now Paul, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, can enact on behalf of Onesimus, what Christ enacted on behalf of Paul, namely, I, Paul, write in my hand, I will reimburse, I will pay. And he will offer himself in Onesimus's place to take on that debt and pay it out in real live time and the social consequences of human life. It is not the ultimate salvation, but the parallel is absolutely unmistakable. And then just at the end, he adds that, you know, by the way, Philemon, you owe me your own Soul, <laughs> because I'm the one who brought you to Christ in the first place. So, kind of wrapping up that whole circle there. I just think that's tremendous.
1: You know, and it makes it, 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 it shows how misguided uh, both those uh, kinds of Lutherans and other Protestant uh, theologians who regard justification as pure imputation a sovereign act of uh, accounting uh, done by the uh, 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 banker in the sky crediting the sinner with the righteousness of Christ uh, and so forth. That whole uh, way of picturing uh, this action uh, is an abstraction that really destroys the narrative. In the, in the narrative understanding of these things, I'm putting myself in the place of another. And I'm saying, I, I reckon to me the fault of the other, and I will really bear it on behalf of the other so that the other may go free. Uh, you know, I used to say this uh, to students, what do you think when Jesus forgives sins in the gospel? is it a wave of the magic wand? Abracadabra, by divine power, I disappear your sins into the thin air. Poof. Is that what happens? I don't think so. I think I think whenever we forgive sins, we take the burden of injury, hurt, and guilt back upon ourselves. We say, I, I take it off of you and I put it on myself so that you may go free. That's what the act of forgiveness really is. It's a self-substitution of the righteous for the guilty. And if you don't understand that that's what's actually transpiring in forgiveness, then you get all the distortions of Christian life in which one sibling says to the other, yeah, yeah, you have to forgive me or you're not a good Christian. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, that, that, kind, that kind of, uh, those kind of sick dynamics develop, which then become a substitute for real reckoning with real in, injury and real repentance and real forgiveness. All of that gets gets eclipsed by this abstract theory of imputation. When we see here in Philemon, how imputation works in real life.
0: And I would add to that the the fiery passion for structural solutions to everything operate on the exact same misapprehension that you can just enact forgiveness you can enact righteousness you can enact manumission and then all the slaves will be fine uh, you know obviously we just talked about Lincoln there is a time and a place for that but it didn't actually do a whole lot um, to make the lives of the slaves good freer perhaps but there was so much more work to be done and that all had to happen through real personal connection. And I I don't know, I just come more and more to the conclusion that only the personal is really real. Only the personal is really transformative. And a lot of the, the rage for structural reform, however necessary on some level, is still a way of avoiding the real thing the same way that a quietistic imputation logic can be avoiding the real thing. What we see in Philemon is the real thing and all its stickiness and specificity working itself out and it is not a snap of the fingers either in heaven or at the highest seats of government
1: Uh, so true and that gets us right back to your initial comments about the guts Uh, 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 the the say the greek word i'm just forgetting it for a moment
0: splachna Uh,
1: uh, splachna yes that's right splachna right um and how how much more down to earth bodily um all the way down, can you get then splachna? I mean that, and and Paul three times invokes this to talk about the fellowship, the bonding that's going on between Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. And that, that reminds me. I just want to mention here this new theologian we've both discovered, Simeon Zal, uh, and his book, *The Holy Spirit and Christian Experience*. Because he, too, is on a campaign against theological abstractions, uh, metaphysics, and idealism substituting for this embodied, down-to-the-earth, affective, uh, even emotional realm of feeling uh, in a passive way and desire in an active way. And how this is the the turf on which the Holy Spirit uh, works and and is practically recognizable, and that's I think what Paul is urging in Philemon: show me, show me, the spirit at work in you, uh, by receiving this returned slave Anisimus as a beloved brother in Christ, and so forth. Show me that this is this is the reality of your spirit-given faith. Uh, well, I'm, I'm putting that on an imperative. Show me. Paul is actually uh, much more pastoral and subtle than that. He's actually saying, I know you're I know you going to do this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not under constraint. I want to give you the opportunity to do this by willing consent. It's so masterful. Well, good. That's, that takes me down. I think one of the, the last major points I want to make is looking back at verses 15 and 16. For perhaps through this, Onesimus has been separated from separated for a while, has been separated. So one of those divine passives, right? In order that you, Philemon, might receive him eternally. Talk about ratcheting up the stakes. And then verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother above all to me, but how much greater to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Sarah Rudin, who we mentioned earlier on, um, talks about how this whole more than a slave, what does that mean? Did that lead mean Legal manumission. Did Paul Was Paul on the right side of, of legal civil freedoms and justice? And she basically says in the Roman context, that's a silly question, but also that it misses the really deep drama of what's going on here, which is transforming Onesimus from an ensouled piece of property, which was Aristotle's definition of a slave, to the most central and important set of all relationships in the Roman Empire. So Sarah Rudin talks at length about how father... Uh, and then son, and then full blood brothers among the sons are the only relationships that really matter. Everything else is incidental. Women are incidental. Slaves are incidental. Illegitimate children are incidental. What matters is father and son. And so what Paul does, she points out, is completely transform the landscape of of the you know, apparent, obvious social and legal order to something entirely different in Christ. And so she has, I'm going to read through this because this is so good. She lists off all the absurd paradoxes that Paul insists upon being true in Christ Jesus that now obtain between Onesimus, Paul, and Philemon. Onesimus, though a slave, is Paul's son. Onesimus, though an adult, has just been born. Paul, though a prisoner, has begotten a son. I might also add Paul, though a man, has begotten a son. Paul, though physically helpless, helpless is full of joy and confidence. Paul is ecstatic to have begotten a runaway slave. It is a sacrifice <laughs> for Paul to send Onesimus back. He selfishly wants the services of this runaway slave for himself. Conversely, he gives away his beloved newborn son. Paul has wanted Onesimus to remain with him in place of Philemon, as if a runaway slave could be as much use to him and in the same capacities as the slave's master. Onesimus' flight must not result in punishment, but in promotion to brotherhood with his master. You can just hear Nietzsche (laughs) chuckling there, can't you? (laughs) Right. God died for your sins. I don't think so. Onesimus the profitable was perhaps unprofitable when treated as a slave, and certainly unprofitable as a runaway, but will be profitable when treated as a beloved brother. Onesimus will be profitable not only to his master, but even to Paul. Onesimus, a runaway slave, must be treated as having the same value as Paul himself. Paul promises emphatically to pay any monetary damages, but Philemon will, the reader senses, not take him up on this. Philemon will acknowledge and act on all of this of his own free will, not needing any direct command or explanation from Paul for this rather devastating-looking set of policies. And finally, Paul is confident that Philemon will do even more than he asks. But what is he asking? For Philemon to make Onesimus his brother in practical terms is impossible. Even if Philemon took the dizzying step of making him an heir, he could not share with him his own privileges as a freeborn person. Assuming he is one, the laws forbid it. But even as a figure of speech or an ideal, what does brother mean?
1: Wow. And... You know, that that's Sarah, uh, Sarah Rudin, right? That, that yeah. long quote came, came from her chapter uh, about slavery in the book, Paul Among the People. Uh, I'll just add to that some uh, words from her conclusion to this chapter that follow up on what you just read. Uh, he leaves Philemon without a to-do list and with only, only an assurance of profound love and purpose. He turns his sermonizing into a bomb, presses down the detonator, and walks away, leaving (laughs) glittering fragments of absurdity in place of the conviction that people solve problems. This could be called a cop-out, pie in the sky, but in the most practical terms, Paul was justified. The early Christian church, without staging any actual campaign against slavery, In the course of the centuries, weakened it until it all but disappeared from Europe. Slavery was doomed simply because it jarred with Christian feeling. And I think that would even be true to say um, uh, of um, the United States of America, when we recognize that it was not just slavery, but also racism. That was standing in the way of Christian feeling. Yeah, that verse 15 that you read, I wanted to comment on that. Uh, perhaps through this, he has been separated for a while in order that you might receive him internally. Uh, here, Sarah, I think you have the illusion, the divine passive to the Holy Spirit, who is the active agent uh, of the providential governance of God in history. And this is a kind of a a riff on the conclusion to the Joseph story, uh, where Joseph in the end uh, uh, reconciles with the brothers who once sold him into slavery with this uh, theological consolation of divine providence. You meant it for evil, brothers, but God meant it for good. Uh, and I think that's a, a typical pattern of uh, of divine governance of a sinful world, uh, in in the in biblical narrative, that's got its echo here in verse fifteen.
0: Oh, that's so good! I didn't even think of the Joseph connection, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I guess what, uh, having spent all this time with Philemon, it um, completely reaffirms all my Lutheran presets, which is that the joyful exchange is the true heart of reality, that despite all of the agonies and tragedies and betrayals and injustices, that the, the true center of the true creation and the God who created it is this joyful exchange and the and that what follows right after in verse 17 receive him as me it's just so starkly put paul says to philemon take this runaway slave probably who has betrayed you who is the scum of the earth who maybe stole property from you who you have no reason to love and respect in fact every reason to punish probably even get away with killing and treat him as your own beloved gospel father who has done everything for you and delivered your own soul back to you by preaching the gospel to you, that Paul could make an equivalence between himself and Onesimus and simply present it that simply receive him as me. That's all there is to it. You know, that is detonating a bomb in in everything that is wrong with the world. And it's realigning and reconfiguring all the pieces and saying, it doesn't have to be this way. There are new possibilities and there are exchanges wrought in love and creativity and freedom. And if they are the real thing, they will be the work of God and God will sustain them and see them through whatever evil assaults them. But that is the the true heart of this this thing we're, we're in the middle of, this life and set of connections and relationships that can get me through a lot
1: yes it can and be, uh, the gospel is not in the first place a set of ideas which then you have to gin up or or somehow uh, animate so that they become interesting or attractive to people it certainly the gospel certainly has implies beliefs and therefore concepts and ideas, and that's what we theologians talk about all the time. But the gospel is the really present Christ of the joyful exchange, enacting his joyful exchanges in concrete human relationships in the real existing world, so that Onesimus here is clothed in Paul's righteousness and as such presented to his master Philemon what is Philemon supposed to do with that
0: <laughs> there's a reason we don't have Philemon's response <laughs> speechless
1: yes it does and this is the the slow patient ferment of the early church which was never a head-on battle with the existing world and its principalities and powers. Uh, uh, Well, I shouldn't say it quite that way. It was always a confrontation at this level, uh, this more basic level of human existence uh, in which sinful desire is confronted with God's desire for reconciliation. And there one must die and in its place a new life must be given and that transacts in the in the encounter with Jesus Christ, who says, Give me your sins, take my righteousness, give me your death and take my life, give me your cunning and stratagems and so forth and take my spirit, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: All right well i didn't mean for et etc cetera, et cetera, to be the final word here but i think the final <laughs> word is the the joyful exchange obtains not only between us and christ but through the power of the holy spirit can obtain between us and others and that is the real live life of the church amen okay okay next time on the show if uh slaves turn out to be humans will it turn out that robots are humans too we will be taking up the topic of ai and personhood